0: I don't know how many pastors have in their congregation, not only their mother-in-law, not only their wife, who's the mother of my children, but also my mom who raised me. All three are uh, not here this morning, but go to our church. And um, to all the moms and and those three, thank you for what you do. Uh, It's a huge calling. And uh, I want to brag on my mom for for a second. Um, In my life, she obviously had a huge impact in my life, but especially just becoming a pastor, there's two things that um, I just want to mention uh, that were huge. Uh, The first was uh, she she raised me in a church uh, that made Scripture a foundation. And this was big because I remember begging my mom to go to a different church growing up here. Uh, I had great insights on what makes a good church. I I was complaining that um, we stood up for every song in this church and therefore... We had to find another church, and <laughs> thankfully, my mom and my dad in that case didn't listen to er, didn't listen to me. But I learned so much sitting in those seats under Pastor Andy's preaching, and it's impacted me to this day. Um, so I'm thankful for that. But secondly, and probably a higher priority, is that my mom taught me to look at Scripture as the foundation for my life, and um, I have vivid memories of my mom teaching me about God, shaping my worldview. Um, The great preacher and probably the greatest preacher one of the greatest preachers that ever preached charles spurgeon is quoted saying I am sure that in my early youth no teacher Has uh, ever made such an impression upon my mind as the instruction of my mother Um, I don't have a sermon, but i'd like to read a story to Doesn't have nothing to do with the the passage we're going through today, but I think it's appropriate. It's a story of a uh, a mom named Monica. In AD uh, 331, Monica was born into a modestly wealthy family. An old Christian maid servant who had also um, cared for Monica's father as a baby brought Monica up in the Christian faith. Monica was given a marriage to Patri- or Patricius, uh, who was not a Christian. For many years, Monica sought to win Patricius to the Lord following the advice of 1 Peter 3 Monica realized her conduct more than her words would be by the means Patricius uh, uh, would be the means of Patricius's conversion by her uh, persevering and patience and meekness Monica won her mother-in-law to Christ Patricius too became a Christian though only towards the very end of his life um, though the wife of a non-Christian Monica prayed uh, that her family might eventually all come to Christ. She attempted to bring her children up in the ways of the Lord, and it pained her to see them stray from the truth she had taught them. For her most promising son, Augustine, was given an excellent education, and Monica hoped that um, this might be uh, a means of his more fully reaching God. Augustine ignored um, his mother's warnings about youthful lust and pursued a life of self-gratification and immorality Um, while continuing his classical education. He lived with a woman, not his wife, and fathered a child. Monica didn't have uh, the words to convince her son of the truth of Christianity, but she determined never to stop praying that he would turn to God. When Augustine uh, went to Italy to teach. Monica, by then a widow, followed him there. In Milan, she attended the church, pastored by Ambrose, and um, rejoiced when Augustine was befriended by Ambrose and eventually became a Christian. Monica died in 387 at the age of 56. In his confessions, Augustine spoke of his grief and weeping for his mother. "'Now gone from my sight,' he said." Uh, who for years had wept over me that I might live in your sight. Speaking of God. She died a happy woman, for she had seen her prayers answered, and both her husband and son became believers. Augustine was only 33 at the time of his mother's death and had many years of service to Christ and the church lay before him. In later years, Augustine could look back on his life and recognize the importance of his mother's perseverance in prayer to his own salvation and ministry. However, neither Augustine or Monica um, could have foreseen that Augustine's own ministry would continue over the centuries and even influence such people as Luther and Calvin in reforming, purifying, and strengthening the church. I took a um, church history class, and uh, the professor got up in front of us um, and asked who we thought as a class was the most influential man in Western civilization. And we all threw our guesses out there. I thought maybe Luther. And uh, we came to the conclusion that the most likely the most influential man arguably was Augustine. Luther was an Augustinian monk and got most of his theology on grace from Augustine. It's interesting to realize that the most influential man in Western civilization, Western civilization was mostly influenced by his mother in the early years. Um, moms, your calling is huge. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to get to heaven and be shocked who has the greatest rewards. People that we never saw in, in throughout history. Uh, we know a lot about Augustine's mom because Augustine wrote a lot about her. And we are thankful for you, mom. So happy Mother's Day. With that said... I'd like to look at Luke 9 starting at verse 28. Verse 28 says <clears throat> Now about 8 days after these sayings he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he prayed the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing clothing became dazzling white. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and, and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God Almighty, we pray uh, that you just open up our hearts to the truth that is in this passage. You have revealed who your Son is to us, Lord. And I pray that we're in awe. We're in awe of you. We're in awe of him. We're in awe of what he did on that cross for us. Let's pray that you're with us this morning, Lord. Help us understand this passage. your son's name, amen. This is a very familiar passage to most of us. It's a a famous passage of the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, And really to understand this passage, we need to kind of get where we're at in Scripture. So we kind of have to review, especially chapters 8 and 9 of Luke. I kind of want you guys to just follow with me, um, follow the headings. The headings are helpful to, to get um, the context of the passages that you're reading. Um, Jesus's ministry is progressing at this point um, in the scriptures. So, so is the revelation of who he is. Jesus's words, actions, teaching, and especially his miracles were revealing Jesus's true identity look at the headings. The first one is in in chapter 8, verse 22. If you can turn back a page. Jesus calms the storm. This is showing that Jesus is Lord over the natural world. The next passage in Luke 8, 26, Jesus heals a man with a demon, showing that he is Lord over the supernatural world. In chapter 8, 40, Jesus heals a woman that was bleeding showing that he's Lord over disease and sickness. In chapter 8, 49, Jesus even raises a child from the dead, showing that he is Lord over life and death. Jesus is displaying his power and authority, the type of power and authority that that people expected the Messiah to have. But there is a problem. Jesus didn't fit people's expectations of what the Messiah looked like. In chapters 8 and 9, you really start to see a a tension, a question that's getting set up. Who is this Jesus? It's the most important question any of us could ask. And how you answer that determines how you live out your faith. Who is this Jesus? Look at chapter 8, 25. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? Who is this that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? If you look at chapter 9, verse 9, Herod, King Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this? Who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is this Jesus? It's exactly what Jesus asked his disciples in, in chapter 9, verse 18. Now, it happened that when he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? In verse 19, they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. In other words, they couldn't deny Jesus' miracles. He's at least a prophet because he's doing these ridiculous miracles. But no one was, was, was willing to say that he was the Messiah. No one was willing to say he was the Christ. Because he didn't fit their expectations. And that's a bold claim. So verse 20, then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Looking at the, uh, the uh, disciples. And Peter answered, The Christ of God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Peter was exactly right, as Brent preached last week. Jesus was the Messiah. Just a different Messiah than they were expecting. They had the right title, but the wrong understanding of who the Messiah was. They thought the Messiah was going to be a geopolitical king, a geo-earth, an earthly king that was going to set up a, an earthly kingdom. But Jesus crushed this expectation in verse 22 by saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew says that he said this plainly to them. Must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, on the third day be raised. And not only that, verse 23 he adds, If anyone would come after me, if you want to be my disciple... Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I know today the cross means something different than back then it did. When they heard, pick up your cross and follow me, that meant a torturous, horrible death. You want to be my disciple? Pick up your cross, follow me. I mean, think about this. The disciples, what were they thinking? I mean, this was like an emotional roller coaster. They hear that he's the Christ, he's doing these miracles, and he says he's going to die. Then he says, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to die. They had to be asking themselves, well, what's the point of following you then? If you're just going to die and you're going to lead us to death, what's in it for me? And you know what? I think that's a legitimate question. Jesus even said, count the cost. Count the cost. Is following Jesus worth it? If it's going to cost everything, what is the gain? What is the gain? I believe that's the point of our passage today. Jesus is going to show the disciples the gain. He's going to show the disciples the gain. Look at verse 26 of Luke 9. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Pick up your cross and follow me. But listen, that's not the end. I am coming back in my full glory and it's going to be worth it. My glory is worth it. Then he adds something in verse 27 that's interesting. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is about to give three disciples a taste of the coming kingdom, a taste of his glory, to encourage them. You need to pick up your cross, but it's worth it, and I'm going to show you. So that sets up our passage today. I want to look at three key events that explain the transfiguration. First is the first, uh, A point is God the Son's transfiguration. The second is God the Son's conversation. A third is God the Son's identification. So let's start with God the the Son's transfiguration. We get that word from uh, Matthew, transfiguration, that Jesus transfigured in front of the disciples. But verse 28 says this in Luke. Now about eight days after these sayings, about a week after these sayings. What are these sayings? That Jesus is the Christ, he's going to die, and the disciples need to pick up their cross and follow. Now about eight days, about a week after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. All of them went up to pray. Jesus invited these three to go pray. But look, skip down real quick to verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him, that would be James and John, were heavy with sleep. Jesus brought them to pray. He ends up starting to pray, and they fall asleep. Why heavy asleep? Well, we don't know what happened the week before. Um, Each passage goes from the sayings of Jesus saying, pick up your cross, and uh, straight to the Mount of Transfiguration a week later. But I have a guess. There's another place in Scripture where Jesus takes disciples to pray with him, and the disciples fall asleep. Can you think of it? Yeah, Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to this. Don't turn there, but Luke 22, 45 says this. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. They're sleeping out of sorrow. Sorrowful because Jesus just reminded them that he was going to die. And he added that Judas would betray him and Peter would deny him. My guess is in a similar way, in Luke 9, they were heavily asleep of sorrow, discouragement, just being emotionally wore out and sleepy. Why? Well, Jesus just told them that he was going to die and that they needed to pick up their cross and follow him. That would have been hard to hear. So look at verse 29. And as he was praying... Disciples are asleep at this point. The appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. If you're reading the NASB, it says his clothes became white and glimmering. The Greek word for glimmering or dazzling that's been translated, that word, literally means to to give off a bright light, to flash or gleam like lightning. That's why I like the NIV. It says his clothes became as bright as flash of lightning. Mark 9.3 says, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark's making the point that this was a supernatural white. It's almost as you go through it, the authors didn't know what words to use. They were a loss for words. They're trying their best to explain this. Have you ever seen something you can't put into words? About two weeks ago, um, two weeks ago, I wasn't here Sunday because we took a trip to the Grand Canyon. First time I've ever been there. Never seen the Grand Canyon, just pictures of it. It was amazing. And people would ask as I came back the next week to church, How is the Grand Canyon? And I would say, Big. (laughs) I mean, what am I going to say? You can't put it into words. I mean, as we were driving to the Grand Canyon, I'm trying to explain it to Autumn. Hey, we're driving seven and a half hours to see this, this, this really big hole in the ground. And, and as a two and a half year old, she'd look at me like, what? No, you don't get it. it it's big. <laughs> the gospel writers were saying the same thing. Listen, this was Bright. Matthew seventeen two says, and, and as he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. His face shone like the sun. Imagine just standing next to the sun. Actually, in Acts twenty six, Paul talks about his conversion. And he says something very interesting. In verse twelve, he says this: He was on a journey to Damascus with authorities and commission, with the authority and commission of the chief priests, and at midday. At midday in the Middle East, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. At midday in the Middle East, Paul says a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, he's, what else can you do? I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was Jesus. Brighter than the sun at midday in the Middle East. Matthew says, and he was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Luke says, the appearance of his face was altered, and the clothes became dazzling white. Brighter than the flashes of lightning. Brighter than the sun. And Jesus' glory is overwhelming. So that's the first point, God's the Son's transfiguration. This leads us to the next point, though, God the Son's conversation. Verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's an interesting question when you're reading in transfiguration, and if you've read this passage before, maybe you've asked this question, Why Moses and Elijah? I mean, out of all the men in the history of Israel, why those two men? I mean, without a doubt, they are great men. Moses was probably one of the greatest leaders Israel has ever seen, and Elijah was one of the greatest prophets. They both had unusual deaths, maybe that's why. God buried Moses so that his body would never be found in Deuteronomy 34.6, and Elijah did not die, but was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind, 2 Kings 2.11. Maybe it's because they both were around during times of new revelation that they wrote, and, and amazing miracles testifying to this new revelation that was coming out. Moses and the law, Elijah and the prophets. And that makes sense because people were always accusing Jesus of, of going against the law and the prophets. Matthew five seventeen says, Do you think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Transfiguration proves it. He wasn't against them. It shows he knew them personally. In fact, Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses, which is the law, and all the prophets, he explained to them, the disciples, what was said in all of Scripture concerning himself. He said, The law and the prophets point to me. When Moses and Elijah talked and wrote, they were talking and writing about me. This would have been a testimony to the three apostles that were there. Jesus wasn't against Moses and Elijah. He wasn't against the law of the prophets. But I don't think that's the main reason. There's something really interesting about this passage as I was studying it this week. It points two directions. First, and this is obvious, it points forward. Transfiguration points to the eschatological future, the last things, the second coming of Christ, how everything ends. He's coming back, Jesus, in all of his glory. This first coming was in his humility, in a humble state, as a, as a man that no one would look upon as anything special. His second coming, he's coming in all of his glory, and everyone will see him, and every knee will be bow, and every tongue will confess, as prophesied in Revelation. And transfiguration is a taste of what it will be like. So it's fitting that Elijah was there. Elijah is seen as an eschatological figure, uh, end times figure. He has a role to play in the end times. He was prophesied to come just before Jesus in the day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says this, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Therefore, Elijah has always been a character in the history of Israel that pointed to a future coming of the Messiah, the future coming of the Christ. Transfiguration is a glimpse of of Jesus' second coming. Therefore, it's reasonable that Elijah was there. Here's where it gets interesting. Transfiguration also points backwards. Points back to the Exodus. How? Well, at least four ways. First... The mountain, as a place of revelation, right? They're on this mountain, and Jesus is revealing who he is, and God speaks, reveals. As a place of revelation, parallels the setting of Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. Second, the presence of a cloud, in verse 34 of this passage in the Mountain Transfiguration, points to God's guidance of his people by a cloud in Exodus 13, 14, 16, and 19. Third, verse 34 says that they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud. This is exactly what happened with Moses in Exodus 24, 15 through 18. And lastly, Moses was there. He was a key figure in Exodus and he was there at the Mount of transfiguration. So it seems like the, the the transfiguration points back to the Exodus. Now look at verse thirty, this is interesting. Verse thirty again it says this, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. His departure. Any guess what Greek word is used here for departure? It's the word exodus. Spoke of his exodus. The transfiguration points back to the exodus. Why? We'll look at verse 31. He spoke of his exodus, or departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. He's talking about his exodus, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. In other words, he's talking about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. He is departing. He's making an exodus from this world to a better one. Just like Israel departed or exodus, had an exodus from Egypt, a place filled with paganism, death, and harsh slavery, they exited from there to a promised land filled with milk and honey. Jesus is the first in the new covenant to depart from this life, a life filled with sin, death, evil, emptiness, and slavery to a promised land filled with infinite joy and satisfaction. Why is this important? Well, when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, he is telling his disciples, die to this life. Deny yourself in this life to gain an infinitely greater life. If you don't believe me, look back at verse 23. It says this, If if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, talking about this earthly life, whoever loses this life, for my sake, will save it to a greater life. Pick up your cross and follow me because on the other side of the cross is life. Pick up your cross for a great reward. Pick up a cross for for a far greater life, a promised land. And you know what? Jesus is our example of this. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he die? How about this? Why did Jesus endure the cross, the horrors of the cross? Out of pure duty? Because God told him to Hebrews twelve two says this looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith, in other words, our example, this is our example, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And we have this misconception of God in our culture that God's some kind of cosmic killjoy. God's not a cosmic killjoy. Jesus had faith that obeying God, even though it was going to be hard, even though it meant to deny himself, even though it meant his life, would bring greater joy in the long run. And so he listened. That's the essence of faith. It's the essence of faith. At the transfiguration, Jesus is showing, and God is showing, Peter, James, and John, the gain Losing your life is hard. Don't get me wrong. The cross was hard. For Peter, it literally meant a cross. He was crucified upside down. For most of us, it means self-denial, and that is hard. What is self-denial? Well, Brent preached on it last week, but one commentator said this. Self-denial was a common thread in Jesus' teaching, and it's going to keep coming up in Luke. The kind of self-denial is a willingness to obey his commandments, serve one another— and suffer, perhaps even die, for his sake. It's making Jesus worth more than anything else this world has to offer. That's worship. The word worship comes from the word worth. What is worth the most in your life is what you uh, worship. Making Jesus worth more than anything else in your life, even life itself. And Jesus is showing the disciples that the Mount Transfiguration, it is worth it. It is worth it. The Mount of Transfiguration is a promise. It's a promise of a far greater life with our Lord. It's a promised land. No sin, no sadness, no death, no tears. Let me ask a personal question. Is life ever hard? Yeah? You know, as a pastor, I see it. I see it. You know, it's wearing sometimes. Deaths, sadness, disease, cancer, hard job loss, rejection, divorce, discouragement. What about this? Anyone just tired of struggling with sin? You know, next to just being with Jesus, this is what I'm looking forward to the most. Freedom from the presence of sin. I'm tired of my selfish attitudes, my just selfishness. I know sin doesn't have power over me, and I know I'm free. I know I'm justified. I've seen growth in my life. I see fruit. But sometimes I feel like Paul. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans seven twenty four. Listen, the transfiguration is a promise. They promise. God has saved us from the penalty of sin. God, if we are saved, is saving you from the power of sin. But one day God will save you from the presence of sin. That's the promised land. Eternity with Christ and eternity without sin, pain, suffering, death, sorrow, and evil. I'm looking forward to that day. I rejoice with Paul. Saying, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Therefore, pick up your cross and follow Jesus joyfully, with joy. One of my favorite parables is about a man that finds a treasure in a field. And he sees the treasure, and he sees how much this treasure is worth, he buries it again and sells everything he has for that treasure. And it says in that parable, he sold it joyfully. Because he understood that the treasure was worth so much more than anything he owned. That's what it means to follow Christ. Therefore, pick up your cross. Follow Jesus as our example, that for the joy that was set before him, you better believe the guy that sold everything that he has, that was hard. But the joy of gaining the treasure that was set before him was so worth selling everything that he did it joyfully. The joy set before him endured the cross, Hebrews 12. Pick up your cross with joy and hope that there's a great reward on the other side. Again, that's the essence of faith. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Can you imagine waking up to this? (laughs) They're asleep because of sorrow and discouragement, depression, and they're out, and they're woken up by a glorious, intense, beautiful white light. And there's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah just having a conversation in front of you. How awesome is that? Verse 33, and, and as the men were, were parting from him, that meaning they were leaving, Moses and Elijah started to leave. And this experience is about to end. Peter does what he does best. He puts his foot in his mouth. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, I love that line. Not knowing what he said. In other words, he talked and he, before he thought. <laughs> he started talking and he was without thinking. Mark nine six says, "For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified." All three disciples terrified. In fear, Peter says, "Let us make three tents: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah." Well, why did he say this? He didn't want this experience to end. He suggested making tents. Hey, let's just hang out here for a little bit. You guys don't need to leave just yet. Right? He had the cross promised to him back in, on um, off the mountain. On the mountain, he's enjoying his, his time here. One commentary, I love w- what this commentator said. Peter, James, and John experienced a wonderful moment on the mountain, and they didn't want to leave. Sometimes believers have such an inspiring experience that they want to stay where they were, away from the realities and the problems of daily life. And these are summer camps. We see this. You guys have experienced this. Emmaus, different things that, that, that are retreats, women's retreat, that, that are camps that get us away where we have just intense time with the Lord, away from all the realities and problems of daily life, knowing that struggles await them in the valleys encourages them to linger on the mountaintops. Yet staying on the mountain prohibits ministry to others. Christians need time to retreat or times of retreat and renewal, but only to, uh, so they can return to minister to the world. When you leave an inspiring mountaintop experience, be ready for the challenges real life um, uh, experiences in the valley. Your faith must make sense off the mountain as well as on it. What Peter said was dumb for two reasons. One, he needed to face reality. This experience was meant to encourage him to go back to reality and minister. To accomplish the work of the ministry. There's still much to be accomplished in Acts. So he needed to face reality. Secondly, it was dumb that he said this because Jesus is not equal to Moses and Elijah. Jesus, yes, was 100% man, but he was also God the Son. And God the Father is going to make this very clear to Peter. This brings us to the third point. God the Son's identification. God the Son's identification. Verse 34. He was saying these things, um, equating or making Jesus... Moses and Elijah equal to each other by saying, let's build three tents. He was saying these things, um, a cloud came and overshadowed them. A cloud came and overshadowed them. Now, just picture this sight. Matthew adds something interesting. He says, a bright cloud, a bright cloud, overshadowed them. So bright, this cloud, so overpowering, that it overshadowed Jesus, whose face shone like the sun. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. <laughs> you better believe they're afraid. Terrified. And I hope you guys have seen that terror and fear is a common thread throughout this whole entire passage. That word is used over and over again from the three different witnesses to this passage. Terror is a common theme. Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. God said, This is my son, my chosen one. In other words, don't make my son equal to man, Moses and Elijah. I am pleased with him, he said at the baptism. Listen to him. And that's the application of this passage. Right? God gives us the application. It's pretty simple. The one command. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to the words of Jesus. I think the disciples got it. At least in, in, in this portion of Scripture. Because in Luke nine thirty six, the next verse, it says this, and, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus found them alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Imagine having an experience like this. The first thing you want to do when you have a a huge experience is go and tell everyone what happened. But they told no one. Why didn't they tell anyone? Because Jesus told them not to tell anyone. Matthew 17 9 says this, and they were coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And they listened to him. They got the application, they listened to Jesus. They didn't tell anyone until the Son of Man was raised from the dead. Why? Well, everyone had false expectations of who Jesus was. They expected him to be this this, this Messiah, to be this glorious. They expected him to build an earthly kingdom. And no one got it that he came to die for our sins. It wasn't until after the resurrection that people got it. And after the resurrection, the disciples were told to go tell everyone. And we've been telling the world ever since for 2,000 years. Till then... Don't tell anyone. And they listened. They listened. That's our application. Listen to them. Listen to Jesus. What's that mean? Just the red letters of Scripture? No. Hebrews one one says this. Long ago, in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, that's the days we are in right now. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He has proven he has authority through his miracles. Then he passed that authority down to the apostles... Wrote the rest of the new scripture. The word of Jesus is the word of God, and we are to listen to it. We are to make scripture the foundations of our life. That's the application. One day, we will all depart that are saved in this room, those that have put their faith in Christ. We will depart. We will have a grand exodus from this life to the next. But till then, listen. To the word of God. Think about this. I want to end with this. This mountaintop experience was quite the mountaintop. I mean, this is the mountaintop experience. It was meant to encourage. I hope you were encouraged this morning so far. It's meant to encourage the three disciples. And, And Peter didn't want this experience to end. That's why he built the tents. He said, it's good that we're here. Yet... At the same time, it was terrifying. Leads to a a question that as I was going through this, I'm like, if the transfiguration was a promise of a joyous future, then why is there so much fear? Why is there so much terror? Let me ask another question. It's kind of a side question, but I think this might help us out. Have you ever been... Buy something that was just so awesome and so big that it was terrifying. We went to that trip to the Grand Canyon, and Autumn didn't get it. Um, Was not impressed at all. Uh, She was more interested in the tram rides that she called school buses uh, than the Grand Canyon. But something changed when we started hiking down the cliff of the South Rim. No guardrail, 5,000-foot cliff. I was holding her, and she held on to me a little tighter than she normally does. I have two stories that I like to tell the high schooler. I'm not a good storyteller, so I don't tell too many stories, but I have two. And one of them, I won't tell this story, but one of them is about a storm that I experienced in all places, L.A. And I know everyone that's from the Midwest is like, you don't know what a storm is. Well, this one was, was memorable enough that it has not left um, uh, my thoughts. I was driving on the 210 freeway at 2 a.m., and uh, there was lightning just all around me, every which direction. And I could tell this lightning was close. And I was, as I was driving down the 210 freeway, A lightning struck a tree, and it burst into flames right off the edge of the uh, freeway. It was amazing. It was awesome, and they, that experience was overwhelming. The power being that close to a lightning strike. I felt extremely small in that moment. And I think it's appropriate to say that it was glorious in a sense. Yet you know what else it was? It was terrifying. Some things in creation are so big, so awesome, and so powerful, they are terrifying. Yet for some reason, something in us are, are, are attracted to these things. The Bible is very clear that the glory of creation is a direct reflection, a direct reflection of the glory of God. I believe that the Mount of Transfiguration is a clear picture of man's greatest dilemma. God is the only being, the only thing in all of reality that can satisfy our souls that can satisfy our deepest desires. Our souls are crying out for something. And God is the only thing that can bring peace and everlasting joy. Yet, we are separated from him because of sin. Deep down, everyone knows this. I don't care if you're an atheist, a Buddhist, whatever you are. Deep down, everyone knows this. Everyone knows there's something missing in life. We know that that we were made for something bigger than us. I think that's why hundreds of people go to the Grand Canyon. They don't go there to to feel really good about themselves. They go there to forget themselves and see something bigger than them. We know we need God. Yet at the same time, I, I believe deep down everyone knows they're not in right standing with God. It's man's dilemma. We're in rebellion. Listen to this. We are in rebellion with the one being that can satisfy our souls. I believe no one was more aware of this than Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. They didn't want to leave. Hey, Peter got it. It's good for us to be here. Yet at the same time, they were terrified of God. Terrified of God. Therefore, we're in need. Man is in need. We need something or someone to rescue us from this dilemma. We need something or someone to bridge the gap between us and God. We need grace. It's exactly what Peter, James and John got. Turn real quick to Matthew 17:6. It's a little interesting thing that's put in here. It's only found in the book of Matthew. Matthew, chapter seventeen, verse six. Says when the disciples, when the disciples heard this, again the voice that came from this cloud that they're they're in this overwhelming cloud. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They experienced the holiness of God, and they were terrified. You better believe when we see the the glory and holiness of Jesus in the second coming, there's going to be a lot of terror. But, verse 7, Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. You don't need to be terrified. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. How beautiful is that? Only Matthew has this verse in there. It really happened, this this transaction happened between Jesus and the disciples, but only Matthew was inspired to record it. And I asked myself, well, why didn't Matthew add this? Here's my guess. Matthew was a tax collector. And if you don't know what a tax collector is, it is the worst of worst sinners. The worst of worst sinners. And Matthew was also a Jew, so he knew a lot about God's holiness, wrath, and justice. He had a healthy fear of the Lord. So forgiveness for Matthew meant a lot to him. My guess is out of all the gospel writers, he understood the debt he owed better than them all. He was terrified of the holiness of God until he met Jesus. Listen to verse 7 again. It's the gospel. The disciples are rightly terrified. In the presence of holiness, a debt that they cannot pay, their faces on the ground. But Jesus came and touched them. Jesus acted. He came to them and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Why? They should be terrified. They're in rebellion of this God. Because Jesus made a way for us to have a relationship with him. He took our place on the cross. He paid our penalty so that we could have a relationship with this awesome and glorious God. So we could call him Father. So that we can boldly approach the thorn, throne of grace. Verse 8. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I'm going to end with this, this morning. If you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, today's the day of salvation. Put your faith and trust in him. Cry out to God for forgiveness for your rebellion against him. Jesus has provided a way for us to have a relationship with the one being that will satisfy our souls. He has bridged the gap. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, you are glorious. You are holy. You are beyond explanation. These passages remind us of just who you are, Lord. One day we will experience that holiness. One day we will experience that glory And for all of us, it will be terrifying. But for those that have their faith in Christ, we'll be reminded that our debt is paid, that we can have a relationship with you. God, we thank you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for a promised land, Lord, a land where we can put away all of our sorrows, all of our tears, all of our pain. Lord, we look forward to that day. Till then, help us to listen to your word. Help us to live in light of that reality with a joyful heart. I pray that people look at, at us here at Country Oaks, the community sees us and go, What's different with all of them? How are they so filled with joy? What is that peace that just doesn't make sense? God, give us that. Give us the faith, Lord in you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your precious Son. In his name, amen.